Good morning. Today's reading is John 4, verse 1 to 38. That's found on page 1066. That's John 4, verse 1 to 38. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judah and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sinca, near the plot of of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as as he came from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Have you, how come you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, "Everyone who drinks this water will be thir- everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life." The woman said to him. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you you, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim this place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, as time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for for salvation is from from Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him and who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, 
so that he, the sower, and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We're still working out what works and what doesn't work so well in this church. And so this morning, I've climbed to these dizzy heights. And it's nice to be able to see you at the back. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your presence with us. And we ask, Lord, you send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. That we might see you more clearly and see the opportunities that we have together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're starting a very short sermon series called Running the Race of Your Life. And today, my topic is running with your eyes open. Running with your eyes open. And in particular, I want to talk about seeing the opportunities. In 1993, Liz and I visited Melbourne, and we found ourselves at the National Gallery of Victoria. And our daughter Emily was uh, very young at the time, about six months old. And clearly, we must have looked rather harassed and helpless as we were pushing this little stroller thing in, in the very entrance of the art gallery. And one of the people there came up to us and said, I'm a tour guide. Would you like 30 minutes worth of tour? And I can just walk you around and show you the very highlights of this incredible museum. So we said, yeah, we'd we'd love that. And what followed was one of the most memorable tours in an art gallery I've ever had. And she took us from gallery to gallery. And basically, what I can remember she said was these early portraits and early pictures done in Australia by settlers from England are all like make-believe, because when they stood in front of the countryside of Australia, uh, although there were gum trees in front of them, what they painted looked far more like dense English foliage. It, It took them years to actually see what's in front of them, and more years to learn the techniques of how to paint correctly. And that's an example of people having to learn to see what's really there, having to be trained to see what's really there. And seeing what's in front of us can be much more challenging than we think. And what we're going to see this morning, I hope, is how Jesus trains the disciples to see what's in front of them. And he says to them, you heard it in the reading, John 4, verse 35, open your eyes. And there's a sense of exasperation when he says that. There's a sense of him just saying, for goodness sake, get with it. Open your eyes. It turns out in Scripture that God is very interested in what we see and actually has more knowledge about that than we might care to think. He gives Jeremiah an eye test. I wonder if you remember that. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? 
I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said, you've seen correctly. He does the same thing to Amos. The Lord asks Amos, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, he says. And the Lord again says, you're seeing correctly. And it's as if in this incident that we've had read to us from John chapter 4, Jesus asks exactly the same. It becomes apparent what the disciples see and don't see. Now, we had the whole incident read to us, and it's probably a story that you know extremely well. It's something of a preacher's favorite, I must say. And one of the reasons, actually, it's such an appealing story is we're told it in such detail. It's very, very easy to imagine ourselves sitting in and eavesdropping the conversation. And we have such a vivid picture of Jesus, don't we? Hot in the middle of the day. We can imagine it's a sultry day. It's a deserted spot in the middle of pretty much nowhere, actually, outside the town of Sychar. And there is Jesus, dripping with sweat, hungry, thirsty. And he sits down by the well, and along comes this woman to draw water. And if this was a painting in an art gallery, you really would need to have the dialogue playing in the background so that you could hear what they're talking about. And you know the story so well. At the beginning, she's a lost soul. And by the end of the story, she seems to be quite changed. But today, I'm going to focus on something else other than that dialogue and where we normally look. I'm going to focus on the disciples and the answer the question, well, where are they in this story? And the answer is largely missing. It rather looks to me as if this was a bad hair day for the disciples, a, a really poor performance day. They had their backs turned at the crucial moment. They were off shopping for food and missed the whole adventure. So picture it like that for a second. And imagine yourself in Jesus' shoes. And you have to, if you're Jesus at that moment when they come back, be feeling pretty good. You've had this wonderful conversation with the woman at the well. Her life is in the process of being completely turned around. And back come the disciples and they say, aren't you interested in our sandwiches? Aren't you hungry? And he has to turn them around completely and say, Look, look over there. And people suggest, and you could buy this, I think it's quite plausible, that the people are coming out of this little village where the woman lives and are making their way to Jesus. And Jesus says, look, the fields are ripe for harvest. There are people here who want to connect with me. And you just want to talk about food and sandwiches. And they can't see for looking because they haven't yet cottoned on what to look for. It would be like going to have your eyes tested at an optician and describing the wallpaper and not the chart. They, they don't even know what to focus on. So let's step back a bit from this incident and let's remind ourselves what Jesus focused on. We're told in the scriptures the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. E.g., not sandwiches. 
people who have lost their way in life. That's what God's mission is, to find them and put them back on track. It it's really is a mercy mission. It really is a search and rescue mission. If you've seen the film Saving Private Run, that's a perfect illustration, really, of the kind of mission it is. Going out to a bleak, deserted, broken place to find someone and save them. In fact, the storyline of a Bible from the beginning to the end is exactly a story of search and rescue. All too early in the book, about chapter 3, so you really haven't got going even, relationships break down between mankind and the God who created them. And the first ever game of hide-and-seek takes place, a game which mankind invented, but God never wanted to play. And really, the whole storyline of the rest of history is of God seeking out how to mend that broken relationship. First through individuals revealing himself, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his chosen race. Then speaking through the prophets, but most clearly and ultimately sending his son Jesus to rebuild the connection. And so Jesus points to himself so often saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I wonder if you picked up the line in the dialogue between the Samaritan woman and Jesus, when Jesus says in verse 23, a time is coming, in fact it's now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. When you stop and think about that, that's a very vivid and encouraging phrase, isn't it? that the Father is out there looking. He's on the lookout. Sometimes we talk about man's search for meaning, but this is God searching for us. He is searching for people he can connect with. So it turns out that that bumper sticker, Carpenter Seeks Joiners, is entirely accurate. The Father's looking out for people to connect with. He's got eyes to see. You've got eyes to see. People who are restless and will remain restless until they find their rest in him, as Augustine put it. So if we're going to see like Jesus, we have to be seeking, looking out for the same kind of situations and people. And secondly, I think we need to see what kind of heart Jesus has. And it's a heart that's full of love. It's a heart that breaks and reaches out for people whose lives are broken. See, when the disciples came back from their expedition, what they saw from their shopping trip was Jesus talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and a woman of ill repute. She wouldn't have been out there at a well on her own in the middle of the blazing sun if she hadn't been ostracized from her community. And they saw all this, they took it in in the blink of an eye, and they really wanted to know of Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you know? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Don't you know? You're not doing your reputation any good to be seen with this woman on your own. But Jesus has a different point of view 
entirely. He sees an individual he has love for. He sees someone who has no idea how to make the best of her life. He sees a woman who doesn't need anyone to tell her what a mess she'd made of her life to date, how dysfunctional her relationships have been with men, how lonely and unsatisfying her life now is, forever going back to the well to draw water in the midday sun. And so he says to her, if only you knew who it is that's talking to you, you could have asked him and he would have given you a better way of life. It could start now. And she sees, she's meeting someone, offering her forgiveness, offering her love, offering her some good news. And that's the thing about Jesus. He's come to seek the lost. And the lost come in all shapes and sizes, in all ages and stages. People with no income, people with huge income. People who are famous, people who are infamous, and people who are totally anonymous. He's come to seek and save the lost. We could be looking at any number of encounters that Jesus has with people. We could be looking at how he spotted Zacchaeus. Have you ever thought to yourself, how weird that Jesus, walking through a place, should look up in a tree to see someone? That's just odd. But it's not odd when you think that he came to seek and save the lost. And this man, Zacchaeus, outwardly very prosperous, was lost inside. He, he goes up that tree, it seems to me, a grumpy, mean man. And he comes down that tree generous, throws a party, knowing something already of the love of God and a better plan for his life. This hunger and love for the lost is incredibly inclusive in Jesus. He, he issues these invitations to everyone who wants to, to come to him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Or, if anyone's thirsty, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I imagine that the disciples, just like in this incident in John chapter 4, were forever having their boundaries stretched. To begin with, it was relatively easy for them. They were a small group to begin with of fishermen. They understood fishermen. They were a small group from one little place in Galilee. But quite quickly, that little group, that band of disciples, gets uncomfortable if people not in the least bit like them join the group. So a question for us. If Jesus got on the train at King's Cross this morning at 10.15 with his disciples, do you think he'd say, don't get off at Cambridge, stay on to, till Ely, because there are no lost souls in Cambridge? It, it doesn't seem likely to me. And it seems to me that I know myself well enough that if I was sitting in, with Jesus as my optician, I would say to him before he said to me, there are a few eye conditions that you need to sort out to help me see more accurately. And I'm just going to share a couple of them. Maybe you don't suffer from them, but I do. And so if I do, I'm, I'm presupposing that maybe one or two might. 
Here's the first most obvious one I recognize. I tend to look on the outside as an indicator of the inside. And that's a fail. I get wowed or intimidated or put off by the outside. And then I jump to a conclusion of what's going on inside. It's so easy to do. I need help to see past the image I'm being presented with. Now, people who do comment on these things say that we live in an image-conscious age, and I think we do. We say, really, never mind the content, just look at the cover. No longer do we say, don't judge a book by the cover. We say, precisely, judge a book by the cover. It's almost like there's a game going on, and we all collude to it. I don't actually do uh, Facebook anymore, but all that do do Facebook, we all know, really, that what you see is unreal, and yet we still present that image. So, you know, I'm yet to see a post on Facebook that read anything like this. Today is going to be just like yesterday and just like tomorrow. Children got me up in the night, I got up early for the train, hard work's ahead, it's an average day so far. No one ever writes that. Or on Twitter, friends tried to persuade me that it was worth tweeting, and I still have a Twitter account, but I'm pretty fed up with it. This is, this is the kind of chat that goes on in Christian circles on Twitter. So, it'll be something like this. Miranda will tweet, incredible morning with amazing at Joe blogs, hashtag awesome pastor. And Joe will dutifully reply, great to see Miranda. And she'll turn out to be passionate about something, probably him. <laughs> and, and, you know, we all, we all know it's just one massive front. It's nothing to do with reality. But it's not just Facebook and Twitter that is the facade that deceives us. It's the notion, I think, that success in life, as the world measures it, distances people from any need of a knowledge of God. It's quite easy if you're with people who are, have made it, people who seem famous or wealthy or have, have academic awards, to think, well, hmm, can't really see where God will fit in their life. But of course, the book that's in front of you, the scriptures, tells us a completely different story. When we're thinking they've got it together, so what do they need God for? People have got it together, they need God to know what his purpose is for their life. We all need God to step into our life, or else real life doesn't begin. That's what the story of Scripture is all about. But isn't it easy to forget that? God came to seek and save the lost. And until he plays a part in our life, from his definition, we are lost. We're plowing our own furrows. However rich, famous, content you might look from the outside. And this leads me to wake up a bit. Open your eyes, Rupert. See what's in front of you. The second thing I need help seeing is that no one is beyond the possibility of God's grace. His arms are not too short. Just sometimes people say to you, oh, I'm not the religious sort. But let me tell you something. No one is the religious sort. There isn't a religious sort. You cannot predict who God will reach out and touch. You cannot predict who God will 
touch their eyes to see him as he really is. God's heart goes out to all who have lost their way. And that's all of us at some point in our lives. And this is at the focus of God's very coming. God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son, not to condemn us, but to get us back on track. This message, just take a simple message of forgiveness. Do you think there are any people that you know who would benefit from a message of forgiveness? Do you think there are any people living in your street, any people in your place of work, any people in your address book who, if you like, are just longing to get the monkey off their back? I think it's amazing the amount of people who go through life carrying a big burden, just not able to forgive themselves even, to really know that God could level with them eyeball to eyeball and say, I know what you've done and I forgive you. That would be a message of such good news. Let's see something else that Jesus needs to open our eyes to see. That Jesus has a heart condition of compassion, of never-ending compassion. From the Bible's description, God has a tough time of it. In Genesis chapter 6, we read, The Lord was grieved he'd made mankind on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And his heart was filled with pain because he saw the mess that mankind was making of their lives. And very often you'll hear and see a word attached to Jesus in the New Testament, that he had compassion on people. We're told when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's very vivid. That's what he saw when he looked out and he saw 5,000 people coming for a picnic. He saw they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this word compassion, as you probably know, is a really strong word, meaning his his heart broke for them. It, it ached to a place where he was in pain for them. You have to have Jesus' Holy Spirit, I think, to give you a heart like that, not to become indifferent. Can you see what we're praying for in this race of life as we run the race with our eyes open, to see the purpose of why he came, to see the prospects of the people that we meet, to see how God could bless them if they were included in, or he was included in their lives. Then as I come to a close, really, we need to see how big the harvest is. Jesus said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. You know, the harvest really is plentiful. When I first got to Cambridge, I met with one of the leaders of one of the larger churches in the city center. And we were discussing the future together and the hopes that I had for Holy Trinity and what God might do. And I could see he began to twitch and look a bit worried. And I said to him, you know, you have nothing to worry about here in Cambridge. There are plenty of pagans to go around. There are. You could fill every church in this city and that wouldn't be the target. The target is to empty the city of unbelievers. There are plenty to go around but as you look around, that harvest is plentiful. God is faithful. He's going to build his church. He's he set his life purpose to do this. He's laid down his life for this. And he has told us the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. 
the harvest is plentiful. But I want to quietly remind us, this would be true anywhere, the harvest is plentiful, but as we get ready for the undergraduates to come and join us back in this city, let's just remind ourselves this is especially true for us. Because it's well known, actually, that all around the world, it's a universal condition. Between the ages of 18 and 22, people are asking questions of life. It's what they do. Don't tell them, but they get incredibly introspective. And they go out for long coffees and late nights talking about all sorts of things. But up the list of questions, inevitably, are questions about God. Inevitably, about questions about the purpose of life. It's completely natural and normal. It comes with the territory. And we are privileged enough to be situated in a city which is going to be chock-a-block full of people of that age invading our company. And it's our opportunity. And I, I've always felt it was good for us uh, as the kind of adult congregation. I, I kind of find it just honest to say it takes an effort as we enter a new year to start again. You know, to, because one of the problems you find is you get a year older and they don't. It, it, they come in aged 18 and they're still aged 18 or 19 or whatever and you are now a year older. It's like the ship has left the jetty and you're further away. But it's worth making the effort because this is like God's bringing the mission field right under our nose. And the way that you and I behave, the way that you and I react makes all the difference in the world. If, if we put it on our heart just to offer a warm welcome and maybe to go a step further and invite them to lunch, and maybe to go a step further, you know, just form friendships. It could make all the difference in the world to their time in Cambridge. But I'm reminding us, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest really is going to be plentiful over the next few months. We need to see that. And we also need to see, as Jesus says to the disciples, this work is urgent. It can't wait for tomorrow. He said, don't say four months more and then the harvest, because I'm telling you, says Jesus, open your eyes. Look at the harvest. They're ripe. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, says Jesus, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can be glad together. And I think this says two things to us, and with this I'll come to a close. If you get an opportunity to share your faith, to share Jesus Christ, take it. There's an urgency about this. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. There is an urgency. The harvest is ripe. We cannot be slack about this. But the second side to what he's saying is this. If you hear God speaking to you, do something about it. Don't put off your response till tomorrow because you might not hear him so well tomorrow. One of the images Jesus uses is that he stands at the door and knocks. And it sometimes seems to me that we hear him knocking quite clearly. But if we decide not to respond, somehow that knocking goes into the background and gets drowned out. 
And I don't think I'm talking about just the first time God speaks to you and the first time you make a response. I think I'm talking about those times during the day when the Holy Spirit prompts you or the scriptures seem to say something of relevance to you. And you say, oh yeah, yeah, I must do something about that. But then by lunchtime you still haven't, by the next day you still haven't, and by the third day you can't remember what it was that the Lord was saying. I think there's an urgency about responding to him. And if we do respond promptly and obediently, you'll see a greater harvest. Well, I'm going to close there, but I hope we'll begin to pray more and more and more that we see, we see the opportunities that God gives us. We see the needs of a people that we spend our time with that we begin to pray for them long before we talk to them. Sometimes when I'm spending time with people, sometimes even people I don't know, just going on a bus or a train or something, I look around the carriage and I just think, Lord, I want to imagine how that person over there, how their life would change if you stepped into their life. And begin to pray for them. It's much easier to do, of course, with the people that you see day in, day out, the people that you work with and to begin to pray for them. When they talk to you about situations that they're finding testing and challenging, they didn't need to know that you're praying for them. But the fact that you begin to pray for them and for them to come to know the Lord, I think it makes a huge difference to them. It makes a huge difference to you and we'll spot the opportunities that come with far greater ease. So let's pray that as a church, we in this city will have opportunities to bear witness for Christ that many will come to know him and put their trust in him. That's our prayer as this season of a new year begins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for opening the eyes of the disciples. And we pray, Lord, open our eyes. We want to see clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.